Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome back to The Stacks, a podcast all about books. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. On today's show, we're talking about All You Can Ever Know by Nicole Chung for The Stacks Book Club. Our guest is author and journalist Vanessa McGrady. There are spoilers on today's show, so if you want to read the book first and then come back, I highly recommend that. If you want to learn more about the book without any spoilers, check out my conversation with Nicole Chung on The Short Stacks from Monday, February 11th. If you listen and love The Stacks, you can get more from the show by joining The Stacks Pack and receiving inside access and perks like a virtual book club and more. Go to patreon.com slash the stacks. You can contribute as little as a dollar a month and rest easy knowing your money is going to support an independent podcast that you love. So check out the Stacks Pack at patreon.com slash the stacks. If you prefer supporting the show with one-time contributions, go to paypal.me slash the stacks pod. To stay up to date on the stacks, make sure you're following us on social media and going to the website www.thestackspodcast.com. Links to all of our social media accounts are found in the show notes. You'll also find links to everything we talk about on today's show. If you shop through these links, the Stacks earns a small commission and it comes at no cost to you. So that's a huge win-win. If you have a moment right now, I would love if you would rate and review the podcast. These reviews help us climb the charts and help us break through the algorithms to get new listeners. So if you haven't yet, I would appreciate you taking a moment to do so now. Our most recent review comes from Just Emily C, who says, This podcast is new to me and already it's in my top five of the many podcasts I listen to. Tracy Thomas is one of the best interviewers in podcast dumb. I wouldn't even call it interviews. It's more like natural conversation. I love her curiosity and honesty. And most of all, I love all the books. Thank you so much, Just Emily C. We love the books here too. If you have a moment, go rate and review the show. It's so greatly appreciated and it really helps us getting new audiences and being able to book awesome guests. Now it's time for my conversation with Vanessa McGrady about Nicole Chung's memoir, All You Can Ever Know. All right, everybody, we are back again this week with author, journalist, Vanessa McGrady, and we're talking about All You Can Ever Know for the Stacks Book Club, which is written by Nicole Chung, and it's her memoir of her experience of being adopted and then going on a journey to find her birth family. Birth family. Yeah. Um, So welcome back, Vanessa. Thank you. Uh, we'll just dive right in. Oh, I'll say this now. There's going to be spoilers this week. So if you haven't read the book yet and you care, then 
maybe don't listen and come back later. And if you don't care, that's fine too. You can listen up. Um, so Vanessa, what did you think of the book? I was really moved by this book. And I thought she just did such a beautiful job with her inner landscape mm -hmm. about these decisions and these feelings that she was having. Yeah, I agree. I thought this book was really, it was very emotional and she was very vulnerable. And I felt like she did a great job of kind of, as someone I will admit, who knows very little about adoption, the process, being adopted, all of those experiences, um, she really helped me to understand her process, which I'm sure is different for everyone. But she really was open in a way that allowed me to have the space to kind of think on it. And so I really liked that. Um, and it just gave me a new perspective, a new, a new way to see the world, which I always appreciate when someone gives me a little bit of space to try to, you know, think as I read. One of the things, I mean, right where the books, I think we should start right where the book starts, which is her mythology. She talks about like the mythology of her adoption. And in your book, Rock Needs River, you are, a, you are become a parent and you talk a lot about that mythology kind of as well um, with your daughter and what you tell Grace. And I just am interested about, about that. I think that Nicole Chung did such a good job of balancing the mythology of, you know, what she had hoped to find mm -hmm. or what she was scared to find out versus the reality. And because, you know, usually when we have a lifelong belief or dream or thought, it doesn't always realize or materialize in the way that we think it will. Right. I mean, just look at like somebody who wants to grow up, get married, have a family, those, that doesn't always work out that way. No. And just the same with, you know, she has this, you know, these thoughts about being adopted and her birth family. And she did a beautiful job of just unfolding how she felt during every point of realization that she had. Right. And so Nicole's adoption was a closed adoption. And since you have done so much work and writing on all of this, I would love for you kind of to explain the differences and kind of the, the I guess, mental challenges or emotional challenges that come up with an open versus closed adoption. Would you sure. kind of give a little yeah. background on those? So, so, you know, way back in the day, for most of history, most adoptions were through kin. So, mm -hmm. you know, like if you're, if like your sister died in childbirth and someone from the family would take the baby or raise the baby or usually you know like way back in the day a lot, a lot of times it was like someone in the community or someone in the family would raise mm -hmm. those children during the Victorian age um, when it became immoral to bear a child out of wedlock it was like like highly highly immoral and um, and there's a lot of shame around that and so at that time more adoptions were closed, meaning that there was no contact between the birth family and the adoptive family or the mm. child. And that happened way up through the 80s, really. And right. a lot of, of, a lot of um, uh, birth certificates were stamped illegitimate or bastard on them. And then mm. new, new birth certificates were issued um, if in the case that there was an adoption. Um, and many, you know, there was a big, big gap in knowledge of 
when, you know, like how people could understand where they're from. A lot of children were not even told they were adopted, right. even though they knew in some ways they basically right. knew and, you know, on some psychic level that, or, you know, things just didn't add up um, that they were adopted. And it was really not until um, Alex Haley's roots came out in the seventies. And so, you know, you have a whole generation of African-American people like realizing, you know, and like really taking action, not that they're realizing, but they're like finally taking action and having this like great activist movement to find out like, where did I come from? What right. country am I from? Right. You know, who are my ancestors? Where did I, you know, where did we grow? Right. You know, and, and, um, and that sparked a movement among adoptees the same questions where am I from you know who am I exactly right and so then um, a woman named Kathleen Silber became a great advocate for open adoption and now that's the norm um, it's different for every family it's different for every situation but now it's more common for there to be a level of contact or at least transparency between the birth family or the birth mother and the adoptive family and let me ask you this in an open adoption, with that transparency between the birth mother and the adoptive family, how much of the conversation between the child knowing about their birth parent, is that left up to the adoptive family? Like, how much of that involves the child's knowledge of the adoption? It's it's so much of it just depends on the okay. family. Um, you know, in some, in some cases, there's probably things that you don't want your child to know, like, was it incest? Right. You know, was it a very dangerous situation? Sure. Was it rape? Like, again, there's so many. Right. But there's, different... I guess my question is there's no, like, there's no part of open adoption that has, like, a stipulation about when the child finds out that they were adopted. Like, well, no, I mean, I, it's again, just different. It's, yeah, it's just, it's just different. So there's like, no rules. It's better. On that. I will say that it is better for the mental health for the child to always, know. to always know. You always hear from adoptees that found out much later, and it's very shocking to them, right. and it's disappointing. And they also, it's also erodes a level of trust between the child and the parents, even right. though the parents often meant well, right? And they did it out of love because they didn't want their child to wonder or right anything. But but it's really just better for every, the mental health of everybody involved. Yeah. That phrase, did it out of love, I feel like is kind of one of the major themes of this book. It's like that everyone's acting with their best intentions. And it it's, it's so interesting to think about like how, how intentions are really not, they're not a great guide for life necessarily. Like the good intentions don't always lead to good outcomes. I was so mad <laughs> at the mother for refusing contact. You know, she mm. basically told spoiler. Yeah. I mean, she yeah. told, she basically told the birth family she was not interested in right. talking to them when they tried to find out. And that was just such a huge selfish, right. like honestly, that was like a super, super selfish move yeah. on her that, that yeah. scarred her daughter. Yeah. And Nicole talks about how, I, I think she says it, or maybe I just, this is what I extracted from it, was that there was a need from Nicole's mother to feel as wanted as she had wanted Nicole before Nicole was what she, before she adopted Nicole, like that she wanted Nicole to want her in that same way which I thought was really interesting because of course Nicole wouldn't have that want for her mother because she was always her mother for as long as she knows that was her mother and her birth parents were never part of her life. So of course she doesn't have that longing for her because she was always there, but that that insecurity on her mother's part was really 
you know, kind of got in the way of of Nicole's own growth and ability to understand her roots and her community. But I just I thought that was super interesting to think about. It's sad. It's yeah. so sad, you know, and it is I mean, it is basically that, you know, like you can't you can't cage somebody right. like that. I right. Mean, she basically kind of caged her. Right. And she was, you know, scared. She, you know, thought that something bad might come of it. Right. Like, of course, she she wasn't trying to be, you know, do something bad. But that's that same thing is like this. These intentions are so it's so subjective, I guess, is what I'm trying to say about intentions. And we think in the moment, like we've all made decisions where we're like, this feels like the right thing. I want this to work out. I want to do the right thing. And then in retrospect, you realize like that probably wasn't the best thing for me to have done. It happens to me a lot. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. sure being a parent. <laughs> That's a constant thing. You think you're doing the right thing by your child. And then you realize six months later or five years later, like, probably should have not done that. Or yeah, probably should have done that or I whatever. I feel like I'm wrong all the time. Sure. We all yeah. are. We're all idiots, yeah. which is my <laughs> one of my theme, my <laughs> catchphrases. <laughs> so the book starts off with her talking about her adoption and, like, knowing all her life that she was adopted and that, you know, God had brought her to her parents and there was – angels and there was you know this whole you know the, her family is catholic so it was very centered in things. mysticism yes yeah. like so angels and <laughs> guiding and this and that but why do you think that parents create these myths around their children like where do you think that impulse comes from you know i honestly don't know if it's mythology mm -hmm. i i mean i do feel like it was a very spiritual mm -hmm. um, connection between me and my daughter. Okay. So I can't say that we create it just to placate them. But I feel like, you know, anybody, you know, when we can't explain something, you know, when you mm. can't explain the sun moving across the sky and you're like an ancient Etruscan, you're probably going to say that's the gods moving the sky. Right. You know, right. so it's just the same as, you know, you can't always explain what happens after you die. So you, we say we go to heaven. Right. And that's. A mysticism that's a mystery and it's a mythology right do we know it's true I don't know no I don't know but same you know I think that's the same like we just we just rely a lot on mythology to explain things right because as a parent you you don't know exactly what it was about you that that made Grace's birth parents want choose you like you so you you don't you have answers you have questions I guess in like a in that sense especially in Nicole's book like in Nicole's story, her her parents really didn't know what the Chungs saw in them or why, you know. So I guess that makes sense. You're kind of like filling in those gaps. And I also feel like that, you know, the the Chung family didn't have a lot, you know, like right now. So if somebody, if if there is a young, or they don't have to be young, if there is like a birth parent that needs to find a family for their child, they will be presented with a thousand scrapbooks right. from an agency or a social worker right. that says like, well, these people, they live on a cul-de-sac and they have a golden retriever and they love to go to Disneyland, you right. know, like, so you'll have those, but I don't feel like the Chung's had that opportunity had that. really. No. I mean, it feels like it's just like, Oh, okay. Where's the family? Okay. Like fine. this worked this, out. This worked. Our baby's sick. We can't. So like there's that impulse to create something that feels more whole or like more, more, I guess just to put meaning behind things, like you're saying, like we put meaning behind the sun or we put meaning behind like heaven or whatever, just it feels more full than kind of like this happened. Right. And it's great. And we're so right. happy it happened. But like this happened. 
Exactly. That's I mean, a, that's, yeah. I guess that's I mean, not a great story I, I to think, tell a kid. No, I, I mean, I do. I do feel like Grace and I were spiritually connected, right? In some way, I feel like we are the right. You know, we were meant to be together. So mm. I do feel like that, right? And um, but also, you know, we were picked. We were right. picked by her birth parents. So right, both things at once. There's a phrase for the best that comes up a lot, and you talked about this last week when you were saying that you know people often talk about. Um, birth parents and say like it's the most selfless thing to do or it's for the best or this and that and Nicole kind of suggests that that really glorifies and simplifies something that can be very complicated and painful I don't really have a question I just I don't know <laughs> you're, you're right yes you're right and Nicole is right and there's also I've I've heard from a lot of adoptees that feel like even if they had the shittiest parents in the world, they should have been kept. Like they, they regret, like there's a lot of people who don't like adoption. Right. You know, so much of us are like, rah, rah, you know, you've got a beautiful family. Everybody's so lucky, but really like there's a lot of people out there who don't feel like that. And they right. just feel like no matter how shitty your family is, you should stay with them. And they wish that they had never been given up. I don't know if they would actually wish that if they, you know, were lived, their, in a, lived a parallel a life. Yeah. Like a harrowing, Life. I mean, I don't know. Even at the end of the book, I don't know what Nicole Chung right really would want. In my reading, it felt like she wanted, she loved her parents and loved her life and was grateful to have been adopted. I think, of course, there's always that sliding doors feeling of like, what if? But in my reading, I felt like she felt like she had the life she was meant to have. I feel like she did. And I... I do feel like she really regretted just not having that contact with her the sister information, yeah. and the culture. She was really, yes. she felt like such an outsider totally. being the only Asian right. kid or one of very few Asian right. kids in her community. Right. And like, you know, she talks, I mean, there's a huge chunk of this book is about like this transracial identity, um, which I guess is a phrase that's often used with adopted children who have been adopted by people who are of a different ethnicity than they are. So their birth parents are a different ethnicity than their parents. And especially for her growing up in rural Oregon, where it was very white and her family was very white. I think she said they have like red hair. Like it's not like they're not like dark and kind of like maybe we're related, like, you know, or maybe I've seen some other Asian kids or like maybe I have some black friends. Like it's like white people and this Korean child. And I felt like it was super interesting that her parents did not want to engage with that at all. Like with that idea that she was going to be the only one in the community. Like that they, maybe they didn't feel equipped to have those conversations, but there was no, you know, hey, honey, you're Korean and that's beautiful. And like, like all, I don't see color. We don't see right. color in this family. Right. And like when you, when you talk to people who are transracially adopted, especially like black kids into white families, right. you, you see a lot of that anger um, yeah. and that disappointment that, right. you know, like our family doesn't see color. Well, you guess what? Like, Everybody do else you see does. Me? Can yeah. you see me? Cause yeah, I'm, a cause I'm having a different yeah. experience growing up than right. you did. Right. Well, and Grace is your daughter is Mexican. She has some Mexican, some Mexican in her, some Jewish. Mm -hmm. um, we did the 23. Oh, you did? Yeah. And, but she's, so I'm, very Scots Irish, mm -hmm. like d 
disproportionate, like a lot Scots-Irish. And she is Scots-Irish and also a little bit German, too. And she's mm. really psyched about the German part. Interesting. Yeah, like I don't, she just like really she's resonates really that. with that. Um, yeah, she does a little, a little bit, yeah, a little bit of other things, too. But but her birth father, he was, he was Mexican. Um. Some? We don't. Oh. I, not, he I grew that. up. He had spent time in oh. Mexico. His birth mother may be okay. some part I see. Mexican. Uh, or his, yeah, his mother. Um, there, But there's just a lot that we need to fill in the blanks right. with them. So that's not something that you, the transracial aspect isn't something she that She looks, you, honestly, she looks just like me. She does she look looks, just like She you. looks a lot like yeah. me. We have the same color hair. Yeah. I change mine a little bit, but but <laughs> to um, kind of enhance that. But she is. But we, yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no way we would walk down the street and you know, right. like the people would think that she didn't come out of my hoo hoo. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's so interesting that it just because like you never know. That's I mean that's the thing I think that is for all parents is like you never know who your kid is. If you if you get a kid you know, from having sex and you're pregnant and you carry a kid for 40 weeks, you still don't know anything more about who that kid is going to be than you do if you're picked from a scrapbook and birth parents say, you're the one, Vanessa, it's you. Like you wouldn't have known any more about what kind of person Grace was, what kind of things excited her, you know, that's all so it's like such a mystery. I mean, look at big families. Like right. most families have like the one weird brother, you right. know, totally. or something or like, like, like we don't know what happened with Susan, right. you know, or something. I just think there's like more yeah. similarities to being a parent, no matter what, how, no matter how you came, the child came into your life, then we give credit to, cause I feel like adoption has so much stigma around it that it's like, Oh, that, you know, it's like, but I, ultimately you're a parent. I mean, it's potluck, really, isn't right. it? I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. like it's like kind of potluck, like that you like your family. It's potluck that you're gonna like your name you're right. given. Right. It's potluck that you're gonna get along with people. Right. Totally. You know, we don't know. You don't know. Right. right. It's so true. One of the things that Nicole talks about in the whole like transracial part of the book, it's it's throughout, but in the beginning, she really talks a lot more about that. Is how she's not only is she the only you know Korean person in the community, but she's also the only person of color that her family has any access or relationship to. And so that there's this obligation to be the voice of all people of color, which I just am like, whew, that's hard. You know, we talk so much about how in America, people don't see people who are different than them. And like, we're so homogenous, even if we live in a place like LA, that's super diverse, like it's still you know, white people are with white people and black people are with black people and Asian people are with Asian people. And to think that like you are the representative that people who don't come in contact with any other people of color have to go to. Oh, I mean, that's why people should read more. That's <laughs> yeah. why you should read between the world and me. Right. You know? No, it's true. It's why, you, yeah, it's why you need to read. Yeah. It's why, you know, but it just was like to think of that, like at, at the age of five, at the age of 10, at the age of 15, like ev you're always that person in your family and that like you have to defend things. And like you were saying, you're micro bullshit. Like imagine how much of that day in and day out, family gatherings, Christmas, like holy moly, it's no good. <laughs> no, I mean, even just, you know, it, what's always shocking too is like that people feel like they can't, they have this kind of weird liberty like strangers always have a weird liberty to say things mm -hmm. um 
I just, I recently did a story on what not to say to adoptive parents and, uh, and, you know, especially like transracial adoptions, it's so crazy what people feel entitled to ask in front of children. Like, like, what? like, oh, was, was her mother a crack whore or, oh, was like, how much did you pay for her? Or like, and also like the ubiquitous, like. You see, like a like a black child with a white family. Where's she from? Mm. Well, I get no, that no. too. Where's I have she a from, white from? mom. <laughs> yeah. I have a white mom and a black dad, and I, there were parts of this that I definitely related to. Like I remember once my brother and I were out somewhere with my mom, and they were like, "Oh, well, where's where are their parents?" And my mom was like, "Me," and they were like, "No, no, no. Who's at like who are their parents?" And she's like. It's me. Like, hi, how can I help you? But like, and I mean, and my mother is my biological mother. And even still, like there's that disconnect when my dad wasn't around, like if he was not with us, that people would be like confused, you know, and like minimize our family, right? It's like that micro bullshit, like you're minimizing because it doesn't make sense to you. And how, I mean, how did that feel it to you growing dumb. up? You it's hate like it. It's that, horrible. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that right. didn't happen to other families. No, of course you not. Know. And I actually look just like my mom, which is like, what's so great. <laughs> like our faces are identical. Our skin tones are different, but like our smile, our face, we are like basically twins. And the older I get, the more I, like I look like her. But yeah, it's really hard as a kid too, because you, you only know what you know until you're exposed to more things. So when you're, you know, 10... I didn't know necessarily, I mean, I guess I knew that some people's skin tones were the same as their parents, but you don't think that that's confusing for other people because it wasn't confusing for me that I had a white mom and a black dad, but that then it be, then when people come up to you and say things, then you're like, this is something's wrong with me. Like I'm other, you start to feel that Right. They put like a separation. Yeah. You know, it's funny when Grace was really little, um, we went to a a friend's house and that kid was adopted, a little boy, and in her preschool. And I was like, oh, did you know that he's adopted too? And she's like, you mean there's people that aren't adopted? Like, right. it was like so it was just part of her worldview. Like, she didn't even right. think. And then and then cut to, and then she was like three or four then, and then cut to now where she's seven, and she's crying because she was the only adopted kid in her class, and she felt really, wow. you know, like right. other. Right, because it makes you – my um, my goddaughter, She when she was younger, so she has – her both of her her mother is mixed like I am, so her grandmother is white, um, but her father is both of his parents are black. And so when she was younger, she always thought that like black was like very cool. Like she thought like so if you were black, you were good. So she would be like, "Auntie's black and mommy's black and Grammy's black," and we're like, "Oh, Grammy's white." She's like, "No, no, Grammy's black." Like because she <laughs> just thought black meant like could be friends with us right like she didn't realize that we were just like that it was a description of color and we all just like let it go because we were like That's this the is great thing yeah. I've ever and now That's she so now cute. she's like eight and she knows that Grammy's white and my husband's white so like she but she would say like, Grammy and uncle are black and we'd be like okay cool we're down with that but That's then there's awesome. like a separ- separation and then it becomes oh we're different in different ways and this means something else and not great but also like you said you see color you do you know, but she just didn't know that we were talking about color when we said someone was black. She thought we were talking about like if they were cool. Well, also, if you think <laughs> about a child and you talk like about a black person. Right. They think black. 
like right. the color black, right. the color black, like the actual right. color black. Exactly. You yeah. know, like I remember she, like Grace was talking about, like we did a lot of like reading about Martin Luther King and stuff, and mm. she talked about brown. Mm. And I'm like, oh, that actually makes Charlie more says sense brown for too. Her. Yeah, because yeah. that's yeah. the color. Yeah, the actual yeah. color. Like, yeah. like the crayon. Do you have, do you guys have the crayon box that has like the colors, like the skin cone colors? We don't do crayons very oh. well in our house. Oh, okay. like, well, crayons always kind of get destroyed. That makes yeah. sense. Well, we yeah. in school we used to have like crayons, and then we had like the skin color crayons, and it had like peach and like I don't know cream, and, yeah. yeah, like different, you know. And then there would be like light brown and dark brown and like mahogany and like all these different colors that were the colors of skin, and not just like black, white, and brown and yellow. I mean, right? we're still like like people are still struggling with that with like makeup and. Sure underwear sure and shoes like what like what's nude yeah you know nude is not a color that i, I, can I wear. know we're really digressing here <laughs> it's fine that's what we do yeah. here it's, no one cares everyone everyone's used to me <laughs> just like talking about pantyhose taking care of your health isn't always easy but it should be at least simple that's why for the last three plus years i have been drinking ag1 every day no exceptions it's just one scoop mixed in water once a day every day and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way that's because each serving of ag1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins minerals pre and probiotics and a lot more it's a powerful healthy habit that's also powerfully simple the nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. So one of the things that I thought was super interesting about her she asked towards the end, is she appropriating Korean culture? And that like floored me. I read the sentence probably 10 times because I was thinking to myself, why would she ask that? And then I was like, oh, you know, it's, I started to make more sense to me. And then I was like, is she? And I don't, I don't think so. But I understand that feeling because she wasn't raised Korean. I'm putting that in air quotes because it's hard to say how you raise someone any one way. Like there's so many different ways to be Korean or whatever. I mean, but. but would that would that be the same though? Like, a, like let's say like a black person raised in Ohio wearing a dashiki, right? You know, like it's how you walk. I feel like she wasn't right. But no, I don't. It's think, not really for me to answer either. I don't think that. I don't think that you can appropriate your own culture. Now, 
does it feel authentic to her personally? I think that's more of the question. Yes. But I don't think it's considered appropriation because that is her culture, whether or not she was raised in it and whether or not she's exploring it now in her 30s, I think is how old she is. She's or, also walked through her life as an Asian girl and, Asian, right. and then later an Asian woman. Right. But she's experienced the world kind of in this like white point of view for like she has her Asian point of view but she also has like white cult she's culturally she's she identified with white for most of her life culturally but she has yeah her Asian point of view I mean it's com it's really it's complex compli stuff. yeah I mean and also like is it in the eye of the beholder right is it like I just know it when I see it right and it's hard it's not only is it complicated it's also I don't even feel like equipped to have the language to talk about it which is it's why I'm like kind of stuttering so much today because there it's not something that we really talk about as a culture like I feel like I was saying earlier adoption and the idea of adoption has been so stigmatized that we kind of like have silenced so many people who are part of the adoption triad from birth parents to parents to the children that it's like we don't even there's so many I have to imagine with how global adoption has become there are so many children who are transracial and that like I don't even have the words to explain it it kind of like breaks my heart a little bit. It's, yeah, I mean, I I feel like I'm, yeah, I am not even in the position. I mean, I'm a middle-class white girl. Right. You know, right. so I'm not in the position even to presume right. any of her experiences right. or, you know, how she defines herself. Or, of course. But have you heard, do you have, have you in your work and writings about adoption and your experience obviously is a little bit different, but have you found anybody else who's talking about transracial adoption like or any places like you might suggest people who are more interested in this to go you know who wrote a beautiful book about this is um Jillian Lauren okay. and her book is called um everything you ever wanted mm -hmm. and so interesting such a I know, similar title very, they, actually there's a <laughs> lot of books right now with very similar titles yeah. to these um and she she's local here in Los Angeles and she adopted two boys from Ethiopia mm. and she writes she doesn't write so much about the racial aspect mm -hmm. of it but she does you know but she does have that that transracial adoption as well and just that well like she and her husband probably are going to have to sit down right with them and have the the black boy conversation right. like being this is what it means to be a black boy they and sure are you know or will they have a friend do it for them right. you know or will it be a series of conversations right. over right. time and that's really hard. I think about my dad who, he was a lot older than most people's dads. So he came, he grew up in the South, or he was born in the South and came to California. And he would, would always talk to us constantly about like, do you see how that's racist? Like, do you see? And it was like a constant thing. And as a kid, I was like, uh, you know, it's the nineties, like racism doesn't exist. Like, you know, it was that whole idea. And now looking back, I'm like, that was so important and formative for who I am now, like, as I think critically about race in this country. And I, I wonder, like, for the kids that you're talking about, is like, it's not just one conversation, right? It's like a lifetime of understanding what it means to be. I, I just am so curious about transracial adoptions now. Like, think the more I think about it, the more questions I have. So I will definitely check that book out because that's like, it's a beautiful book, too. She's such a beautiful writer. I love she's, that. Yeah, she's okay. I do want to move, I guess, off the trend. I mean, I don't want to. I could literally talk about this for the next, like, seven days straight. But 
we talked, we touched on this so quickly last week about the stigma around birth parents and how people kind of dismiss their experience by just saying like, it's the most loving thing you can do. Like you're a hero, but then actually shun them and treat them poorly. And one of the things that came up in your book and Nicole's book is that in the hospital, the adoptive parents or the, I guess, well, tell me, did, had you already adopted Grace by the time she was, how does that so work? So how it works, it's a series, it's a, it's a staged, okay. so um, which gives the birth parents time to change their mind, which is huge, so important, like such an important That like grace period it. if there they need to. There is a grace period. Um, it's very nerve wracking for, the, for, the, for parents, the birth parents, yeah. but you know what, or for the adoptive parents, but so what? Like right. that's not, you're not the important part right. of this right, right now. Right. Yeah. So we only had four days to start getting paperwork and stuff done when we met. Bridget Mm -hmm. so we met her on a Friday and Grace was born on a Tuesday and so you get time in in between but she was also in the hospital from you know Tuesday Wednesday Thursday and in that time they had tried to change her mind or just see how committed she was to doing this so first you know we would come and we would visit the baby and we would visit them and we'd bring them stuff and and like it probably seemed like we were family members Mm -hmm. or something but then once they learned that they were placing Grace for adoption, it became a different story. They took Bridget aside, as, apart from Bill, and grilled mm. her for a, Bill out, is Bill's Grace's birth, biological yeah, father. Yeah, biological father, um, to make sure that she wasn't coerced into okay. it. Um, but they also, in a way, treated her like a child, like she didn't know her own mind. Like she mm. said, "No, this is something that I want to do. Um, I'm not ready to be a parent. I'm not. This isn't right for me." But um, but it was very like the way they did it was really just not understanding not loving almost hateful towards bill and bridget or towards you and peter i would say both toward the whole situation like they you know they threatened to you know put her in cps you know or something like Mm. in foster care you know just and this was after we'd you know they had signed all the paperwork saying these are the intended parents for this child and so it was very it was really traumatic for them because a it's a hard enough decision to make for a lot of people anyway I, I can't say it was a very difficult decision for them but it's pain, it's a painful right decision to make right. and then to have people grilling you right. about it and second guessing you and right. you know but they you know in in all fairness like they probably do need to say like these are the resources available for you if you decide to parent right you know so you can yeah you know, but it but they you know it, I just feel like I mean in my mind in my thinking you don't make the decision to give your child up for adoption lightly. Like it's not something that you're just like, oh, I'm going to just do this. Like, and so the idea that like at this point now we're here, the child has been born, the papers have been signed, like this idea that all of a sudden, you know, now I'm going to be like, oh, I actually didn't think about this at all. And, you know, of course people do change their mind. And I agree it's important to have that window in case that's something that needs to happen. But like to be condescending or like, patronizing yeah they were treated very badly yeah and and Nicole talks about that also in her book that that her birth parents were also kind of like pulled aside and they tried to make sure and they weren't into her adoptive parents I didn't know that was something that happened yeah and then Nicole's book too like I think there was still a little bit of a mystery around you know like was it them like did the dad really want to yeah the birth dad really want to keep her you know and she had that longing question like that really lingering question of was I wanted it's hard because on one side I have to imagine that 
you feel extremely wanted by your parents, right? You, you've grown up your life hearing your adoption story or your myth or whatever, your, your connection to your parent. And then on the other side, that opens the door for feeling like you weren't wanted. Right. So like on both that there's, there's, there are these humans in the world who didn't want you. And then there's these other humans in the world who you were the only thing that could make their life feel full. And like that also must be hard because they are so extreme. It's It's not like I kind of wanted you and I kind of didn't. Like it's like you made my life and you were something that I I didn't want at all. Right. And like not that it's either of those things. And again, like that's why it's so important to tell children the truth, I think. And, you know, in the age appropriate loving way, like, like they and I do tell this to Grace and it's true. It is true that they loved her. Right. But they were in no way ready to be parents. Right. You know, and she knows this. She visited them being homeless. Like she's been in their tent. Right. She knows that they. Right. That was not right. a lifestyle for her. And even with that, something that came up in your book and in Nicole, there's so many parallels, honestly, which I was I was more surprised to find because yours comes from the perspective of the parent, hers comes from the perspective of the child. But obviously in my naivete, I, I thought like that they would be very different. But in both books, there's a lot of talk about like kind of guilt and insecurity. And one of the things that I thought was super interesting about your book is that came across for me was your feeling like, oh, are Bill and Bridget going to think that I'm a good parent or like that I, and then on the flip side, like they're homeless and they're living in a tent. And of course they think you're a great parent because you're doing for them what they were not going to be able to do for themselves. But just that feeling of like uncertainty about your own ability, I guess. Well, it it's also that feeling of an unrepayable debt. Sure. Like how do I repay? And this is probably why I was so bad with boundaries and right. et cetera. Like, you know, how do you repay a debt that you can? And people are like, oh, well, you did something for them. You gave their child a home. Like, no, you know what? Right. Like there's probably 5,000 people that would have scooped up that baby right behind me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that because I was special. Right. It's because I was... I was lucky, right. you know, and I happened to be at the right place at the right time. Right. And there is that feeling of like, how do I do right by them? Right. How do I do right by this child? Right. Do you feel like those feelings of kind of, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's exactly insecurity. Is that, does that sound true you know, to you? I'm or? not insecure in my parenting, but I will definitely say like when they were staying with us, they had a front row seat to it. Right. And, you know, just like anybody, anybody. Like, like even if like my own mother was right. like in my like she'd have a front row seat and that right. probably wouldn't go down very well either. Right. You know? Totally. So. Yeah. But those feelings and in all you can ever know, Nicole talks about kind of her own guilt about reaching out and like what that did to her sister, Cindy and Jessica also and the parent and her um, biological parents, like what and her adoptive parents, like how how her actions made changes that she felt like responsible for and felt guilt around, which I just thought was so interesting because then once she starts connecting with her birth father, he constantly like apologizes to her and is saying, I'm so sorry. And he's expressing his remorse. I didn't, of course, when I put myself in anyone's position in the triad, I understand that, but I never really realized how, how much like regret or guilt or insecurity or whatever you want to call those feelings. And I think there's probably a lot. And also you said like you were lucky and like that there's also something attached to that. That's like you feel undeserving 
or not undeserving, but like unspecial. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm saying sure it right. I'm sure there's a German word for it. Yeah. Like yeah. It's, I don't feel like I have the right word for it again, but that there's this sense of like, this happened to me and it was out of my control and I'm so grateful for it. But like, why me kind of feeling for everyone in the situation. And it just was really powerful as she kind of explains her own thinking around it. And it kind of confused me a little bit because I, I guess I wasn't expect. I don't know what I was expecting going into the book. I wish I had taken like a journal entry, but I, I read it immediately after reading your book. And those things really stuck out to me as like part of the experience. And I think Nicole did such a good job of explaining that duality you know right. and that it is messy and you know you expect it's going to be one thing right but it is just multi-layered right multi-hued right messy messy just it's not it's not a clean thing right and she did a good job in in describing and like the letting it be messy and just yeah you just gotta let it be messy yeah. but that's also makes it a better book right there right. she would not have a book if it was like I met my birth parents. We all went on a picnic. Right. It was great. We ate Korean food and now I speak fluent Korean. The like, end. Exactly. I mean, no book there. You right. Know. Totally. And and what did you think about her relationship or no relationship with her biological mother? That part. So, you know, I am not a Korean adoptee. Right. So, and I was not raised in her situation. Sure, so sure. I'm just going to say like, that goes I, for both know? of us times like a thousand, just if you were worried. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and, and also like, just like what I would have done is not what she would, it frustrated me just as a reader mm -hmm. that, cause I really wanted to hear from the mom, mm. you know, but just as a reader, you know, right. just as that like curiosity, sure, of course. but I can understand like, she just was not in a place you know, to hear that she felt like there was just so much ruined mm -hmm. in her sister's lives and, you know, in her own life in a way because of this woman who was abusive and right. mean and, you know, now regretful, I guess, in her older years. But I would have loved to just hear that side of it. But that was not Nicole's place Right. At that time. I, I know. I wonder. I, I'm with you. Like, I, I just would have loved to hear more from the mom as as a, a reader, observer, just like to make the story in my mind more complete. But I'm sure if you're Nicole, that is part of her story that also probably feels a little bit incomplete for her. But she made a choice to to be Cindy's sister. And Cindy is the love of my life. I just <laughs> love Cindy. I do too. I, like the part where she's like, asks her to be her sister. <gasps> that's, uh, I know. That's the I part know. where I'm, I wanted to cry and I couldn't get it out. I basically, yeah, I'm like fluttering on that one. That I mean, moment. here's the thing though, like the mom, just back to the mom and then to Cindy, yeah. the mom was the main character in the book, but right. we never heard from her. Right. But Cindy, it was so gratifying mm. to to get to know her and to see how loving she was. Like she could have been really resentful. She right. could have turned out horrible. But you know what? Nicole probably would have turned out pretty great too right. if she was with Cindy. Right. You know, if she right. had gone with Cindy. Right. Cindy. Ugh. I just love Cindy. And I loved like the their husbands talking <laughs> yeah. about like their similarities I thought that was so great because I could just imagine myself in the room being like oh my god you guys just did the same thing like oh my god you guys are twins <laughs> like but yes I just I loved the way that they both approached their sisterhood and I just thought it was so powerful 
to have these two adult women choose one another as sisters because yes they are they share the same dna but they weren't raised as sisters that's like meeting someone and just saying like i'm committing to you i met my older brother when i was 16 for the first time did you he grew up in israel oh and his from my father's first marriage and he was kidnapped and taken there by her when he was three so i grew up hearing about him and Mm -hmm. like he was like this sort of like mythical you know spirit child you know but when we met, it was this instant connection. So that really resonated for me right. when Nicole met Cindy. Right. You know, and just that same yeah. feeling of like DNA. Oh, look, we kind of have the same job. Right. You know, and he looks so much like my dad. And, you know, even today we're super close and right. I love him to death and he's he's in Israel. Right. But I just, you know, I do feel that kinship with him. Right. And like you, I guess, get to choose your sibling kind of like because there's another world where you could have met your brother and you guys I guess like you know would have had that same connection but you could have said but you know this guy's just like a distant relative right like that there's like a choice to stay connected or did you not even feel that you just felt definitely definitely there was we just stayed connected but he is like Nicole in a way because he didn't grow up with his father so Mm -hmm. he has a lot of questions he also like grew up hearing bad things about my father sure and so you know, there's a lot, I think, that's unresolved for Elia. Yeah. That, you know, that he didn't grow up with us. He didn't grow up in America. He right. didn't, you know, right. he didn't have, you know, the same experience that we did. Wow. I didn't even put that together. And of course, you talk about it in your book. But I now, now that you're saying this, I'm like, mind blown. <laughs> so the other thing that happens in Nicole's book is that she has a daughter. She ends up having another daughter, but Gracie. Yeah, which is another connection. It's funny. We always pick these books and I've usually not read them when I pick them. And there's been so many times where we've picked a book and there's been like super parallels. Like we had an author on a few months ago in the book we read, both of their books um, had flowers on the cover and it was told from five different characters perspectives and it covered 25 years. It was like just so weird that they connected and that's kind of like same with this. So she is becomes pregnant and that's kind of part of her impetus for wanting to actually seek out her birth parents because she wants to be able to give her daughter some information. Kind of she veils it a little bit as like, just want to know about our medical history. But obviously, you know, if, you've, if you're reading the book, you know there's more there. But she says this thing about like, she can't believe that she's going to be biologically related to someone. And I just thought like, Wow. I think I take that so for granted in my own life that like I have my my family that I was born into is the family that raised me. But hearing her say that like really was like a perspective check for me. And the other thing about her having her daughter that she talks about that I so appreciate is that she talked about all of her anxiety around childbirth and being pregnant and becoming a mom in a really vulnerable way that I feel like people don't talk about. Like what is going to happen to me (laughs) when I go into labor and like all that stuff. You know, I would say that was probably my least favorite part of the book. Like the anxiety part. I don't know. I felt like I'm sure, obviously, she's having those right. feelings and she right. had it, but that felt like the least, that was my least favorite part of it. Because so I felt like, like, we know, like, she's going to have the baby. She's going to be fine. She's right. like, you know, she's like the anxiety stuff to me. I don't know. I did, I felt like it wasn't as necessary hmm. as the, the rest of it, like the big ponderous questions sure. and also the little, and then I love the part about 
Cindy wanting to be her sister, but you know, mm-hmm. like you knew she was going to say yes. Yeah, like you course. knew that. Like of I was course. like, why is she anxious about it? Like she's going to say yes. But that, I mean, that's I'm her, sure in the moment. That's her, fe- yeah. that's her feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, but I feel like that those are probably huge questions for anyone who's making yeah. And like, so I take my biology for granted as well. Like I can tell you about like my great grandparents right. and you know, all that stuff. And Grace is not going to have that much of a, her. Right. I mean, her story is my story because she is in our family. Right. right. You know, but but she's not going to have that piece of it. That piece. Like when she finds out that she's like the 19th generation, I was like, whew, that's amazing. But also I feel that way as a black person. Like, I don't know. I don't even know my like fourth generation, you know, um, for other reasons. But I think that there, I I would imagine that if I could find out 19 generations of the Thomas family, I would be like, it would be mind blowing. Amazing. Like that's so incredible. But I mean, does anybody really know 19 generations? Right, that's what I, like, yeah, that's I mean. That's like a very uncommon Right, but even like thing. 10 or like 8, I don't know. I, I tried to do Ancestry, whatever.com, like where you find your family. And I think I got I got to my dad and then I got to my grandma and grandpa. And that was it. I couldn't get further back. I got names and that's it. Like, so like 19 to me, I'm like, I'd take six, yeah. four. Yeah, no, I would, I would too. I don't, yeah. yeah. I think that the anxiety around the pregnancy thing, what I appreciated, not that it was so intrinsic to the story, but just that she was talking about it kind of in the ways that she talked about her other anxieties and other like things that stressed her out that were more part of like around her adoption. I just like the vulnerability because I feel like so many people like with pregnancy are like, oh yeah, I'm pregnant. It's great. It's the best thing ever. And like that there's also parts of that like for women that's really challenging and confusing and terrifying. And there's this responsibility that you know, you don't know. And then I also died for Brenda, her like birth coach's son. Do you remember? He like pops in for 30 seconds. And I took a note that was like, please write your next book about just Brenda's son. Like the the kid who's in this like woo woo. Like. So I guess, I mean, we're kind of winding down, but I do always love to talk about the title and the cover. So what did you, what do you think of the, t- the title? All you can ever know. So I actually really like this title mm-hmm. because I felt it was so intrinsic to her questions. Like, how much do I know? Right. This is all I can ever know. Oh, wait. Right. Maybe it's Maybe there's not. more. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's more. Right. I thought it was beautiful. And like the beautiful symbology of the, you know, like the kind of frayed root mm-hmm. there and it's like a family tree and, you know, sort of the little sprout. I thought, right. yeah, I thought it was lovely. I thought I thought her cover was pitch perfect and I thought that the title is pitch perfect. Yeah. Even though it sounds like a lot of other books right, right now, like we're having a moment of, you know, yeah. choose one from column A, one from yeah, column B. Yeah, totally. One, all you can, yeah, yeah, everything you ever wanted to know, yeah. all you can ever know. And Yeah, I agree. I really like the title. I love the navy blue. For some reason, that color more than the tree branches or roots. I just love that the blue and the white. The navy the cover. navy blue is a color of credibility mm. as well like psychologically. It's yeah. like, that's why a lot of politicians have navy mm. blue and white or navy blue and yellow. Um but it is like a very solid grounded yeah. like so that's like a very grounding yeah. color. It's true cuz I felt like I trusted her from the beginning and maybe that's part of mm. it. The psychology around that cover and the title you're, I, I didn't actually think about it the way that you said, like, is this all I can ever know? Like, I never, that didn't, that wasn't the way that I interpreted what, it. What, how did you I, interpret it? I, I think I thought of it more of, like, I want to know all I can ever know. 
not like is this the limit but when more you talk like, to her will you ask her? i will i will <laughs> i, I, I love <laughs> i love to ask about t- title and cover are like almost always some of my favorite i we i won't give away the title of your book because when that reveal happens in your book it was one of my favorite parts and like you said your cover is an instagram photo of your daughter which i i love your cover but yeah is there anything else you want to say about this book you know, I just feel like she was so brave. Mm-hmm. I feel like she's going to find such an amazing sisterhood mm-hmm. and, you know, among people, it's, you know, men too, but people who, you know, were in very similar situations. Right. You know, I, I just wish the best for her and yeah. her kids and Cindy and, you know, her whole family. I'm just, she was just super brave and super beautiful in writing this book. I could not agree more. And I, I like I said earlier, like, I hope that this opens up more space for people to talk about their transracial adoptions. I'm just so fascinated by that. And also for people to talk about finding their birth parents and it being less than their imagination as a child or more complicated. Or I think like finding out that your birth mother was abusive is like, that's a whole lot. And I feel like she talks about a little bit like in all the movies, it's like you find your birth parent and either you fall in love with them or you murder them. And like, right. but this is like somewhere in between. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I do hope that this book opens more of that conversation around like your fantasy and the reality of the situation and the complexity of like adoption isn't the greatest thing you can ever do slash you're a terrible person for doing it. Like that there's so much more subtlety and yeah, I just, I basically, I agree with you. (laughs) I know. We should figure out how to go to lunch with her. I know. I know. She's in New York. I'm like, can you come and hang out soon? Just like, just some gals want to talk books. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for being here and everybody. You can get her book, Rock Needs River. It's out. It's in the world now. So check it out. Um, It's beautiful. And then of course, All You Can Ever Know by Nicole Chung. Thank you, Vanessa. Tracy, thank you so much. And we'll see you guys in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening today. And thank you to our guest, Vanessa McGrady, for joining. Also, check out our conversation with Nicole Chung, author of All You Can Ever Know on The Short Stacks. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. To join the Stacks Pack and get inside access to the show, like perks and our virtual book club, go to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the fun. For one-time contributions, you can always go to paypal.me slash the stacks pod. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, will you take a moment to rate and review the show? Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. I will see you in the stacks. <laughs>